Channing, and I'm Elise, and this is the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred text with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to the episode. Today, during our time together, we will cover the biblical book of Joshua for May 23rd through May 29th. As we fly through this book, I'll be both your pilot and attendant since Elise is out of town enjoying some art museums and seaside weather. So while Elise takes good care of her heart and soul this weekend, you and I are going to take good care of each other as we move through the book of Joshua. In this book, we've got a little bit of everything. We've got prostitutes, spies, we've got wars and annihilation, we've got trumpets and deception, conquerors and curses, bodies and bones. Yes, that's right, we are covering yet more disturbing and violent stories in the Hebrew Bible. I think this is a week three or four of consistent stories of violence, Maybe we're just trying to give the war chapters in the Book of Mormon a run for their money. Friends, I wish I could tell you the content's going to end soon and get a little easier, but honestly, we've been dreading the Book of Judges since January, and that's coming up next week. So hang in there with us. We'll get through it together. Really quickly, before we jump into the content for this week, I want to offer a content warning for the episode for scriptural stories of murder, as well as one example which connects these stories to both lynchings and the recent mass shooting in Buffalo, Minnesota in the United States. I will post timestamps in the show notes for those who need them. As always, we encourage you to honor your body and listen to each episode with care. Okay, let's get right into the text. As we open our books and turn to the book of Joshua, the first question I had is, who is Joshua? Maybe you're wondering the same thing too, so I got you. Joshua is one of the spies that Moses sent into the land way back in the book in Numbers. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9, the text says, quote, And Joshua was full of the spirit and wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, end quote. We learn from this that Joshua is the appointed leader of the Israelites after Moses' death. 
as we'd say in LDS spaces, Joshua took on the mantle and is now bishop of this way too big ward of Israelites. Another question I think worth asking is not only who is Joshua, but what is Joshua? Like, what is the book itself? Something that I've learned this year as we've been working through the text is that the LDS church and Christians generally separate the Bible into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old Testament is the primary text of Judaism, and our Jewish friends prefer it to be called the Hebrew Bible. Big thanks to Derek Knox from the Beyond the Block podcast, who brought this to our attention way early on in the season. So if you're coming at the Hebrew Bible from an LDS or general Christian lens, it's tempting to look at the Old Testament as one giant chunk of Bible. That's definitely what I did, and that's how I always understood it. But as we move through the Hebrew Bible this year, I'm learning that our Jewish friends have their own organization of this sacred text. Our Jewish friends separate the Hebrew Bible into three distinct sections. I wish I had a little whiteboard or chalkboard, like if we were at church, and I could write these all down. So just picture me making three different categories or three different circles, and each category has a name. The first one is called the Torah. The second category is called the Nevi'im, and the third category is called the Ketuvim. The first part, the Torah, is also known as the law. So up until this point, this episode today, we've been reading the Torah. The books of the Torah are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the Torah mostly focuses on the story of Moses as he frees the Israelites from Egypt and leads them out into the wilderness. As we move to the second section, remember it's called the Nevi'im, This is also known as a section of prophets. This includes everything from the books of Joshua, where we begin today. The Nevi'im focuses on the story of the people of Israel and their history in the context of their covenant relationship with God. The other books in this section include Judges, Samuel and Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and finally the 12 prophets that are organized at the end of the Christian or LDS Old Testament. And finally, the third section is the Ketuvim, or writings, and this includes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Esther, Job, and Psalms. And these books include wisdom, poetry, and worship. So if you have your Bible open to the table of contents at the very beginning, you are going to find that these books are not listed in the same order as what you'll find in the table of contents in your King James Version Bible. And that's okay. I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up, but I think it's still worth noting and finding our place in the text relative to how our Jewish friends place these books in relationship to one another because this is their primary text. If anyone knows how to navigate the Hebrew Bible, it's them. So the answer to our question, what is Joshua? Joshua is the first book in the Nevi'im, or section of prophets. The book of Joshua begins the history of the Israelite people, starting immediately after the death of Moses. It's difficult to know exactly how much time the book of Joshua spans, 
but scholars generally say that the book of Joshua spans 25 to 40 years, give or take a decade on either side. The first half of the book of Joshua outlines Israel's conquering of Canaanite land, while the second half of the book describes the Israelite disbursement in their newly colonized land. Only two brief chapters at the very end of the book of Joshua summarizes Joshua's deathbed speech to the Israelites, and these are the only two chapters that contain any of what we would consider to be purely spiritual content. The rest of the book focuses entirely on war, slaughter, and divvying up the land between the Israelite tribes. While Exodus was about leaving a land of enslavement, and Leviticus and Numbers were about a land of wandering, Joshua is where we discover just how the Israelites obtained the promised land foretold to Moses. As we move through Joshua, I first want to examine what the narrative in the Bible outlines happens in this portion of Israelite history. Once we get through that, I want to turn and examine some alternative stories to the Joshua narrative. And finally, I think it's worthwhile to talk about something that, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll remember, and that's the power of story on lived experience. So let's get right into the text and turn to Joshua chapter 1. This is where we encounter God's relationship or God's initiation of relationship with Joshua. In chapter 1, God talks with Joshua and basically gives him a hype-up speech, reminding Joshua about the promised land and letting Joshua know that the only thing that Joshua needs to do to be able to get to the promised land is just follow God's commandments. Then as we turn to chapter 2, the action begins. Joshua chapter 2 contains the iconic story of Jericho and our new character, Rahab. In chapter 2, verse 1, the text says, quote, And Joshua sent two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there, end quote. So Rahab, our new character, who is she? Well, Rahab is a prostitute. Some interpretations try to soften her image and say that she's an innkeeper and not a prostitute. I don't know if they're imagining that she runs some kind of bed and breakfast in Jericho, but this is pretty unlikely based on some very colorful and oddly specific rabbinic and scholarly interpretations that I've come across in my preparation for this episode. So I think we can confidently say that Rahab is a prostitute, especially recognizing that sex work is a valid form of occupation and employment, both in Bible times and today. And so we know who Rahab is. What does she do as part of this Joshua narrative? So when the spies came to visit Rahab's bed and breakfast, the king of Jericho heard about it, and he was super worried because the Israelites' reputation preceded them. So the king of Jericho came looking for the spies at Rahab's house. Rahab knew this, so she hid the spies in her roof. She told the king that the spies had come unto her, but they'd left, and she wasn't totally sure where they went, but she thinks she did see them leave the city gate. So the guards leave the city, chasing down what they think are the spies. 
And after the guards leave, Rahab goes back to her roof. Her roof is made of thatched flax. And so she uncovers the spies and she strikes a deal with these spies. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 13, we hear Rahab say, quote, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and the kings that you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. End quote. Rahab bargains with the spies for her safety and the safety of her family. The spies agree on the condition that their presence and purpose in the city remains a secret. Rahab lived on the edge of town, so she was able to help the spies safely escape the city by helping the men down a rope from her window. She instructed the men to hide in the mountains for a few days so they didn't run into the king's guards. Before the spies leave, they instruct Rahab to hang what the text names a scarlet thread in her window and bring her family into the house so that when the Israelites do come, Rahab and her family don't die. When the Israelites do arrive later to Jericho in chapter 9, Rahab, her family, and everyone in her house is spared from the complete annihilation of Jericho. Additionally, a tidbit that I found in my research was that rabbinic tradition claims that Rahab marries Joshua after the conquering of Jericho, and they have children together. So the big question, now that we know what Rahab's part in this story of Jericho is, the golden question is why did she do it? Why did she help these spies? And as I sought out to answer this question, what I really discovered is that Rahab's story is like a many faceted gem. Depending on the way that I hold the gem, turn it, look at it, see how the light hits it, the story changes just slightly. I see something different, something new every time. So I hope that in sharing some of these differing perspectives, we can begin to see that it's pretty impossible to paint a pure or perfect or even singular story about Rahab. So the first perspective that I wanted to look at with you is the Israelite perspective of Rahab. If we read her story from the perspective offered in the text, which, remember, was written by and for the Israelite people, we can see Rahab transcend gender roles and expectations. In an article on the Jewish Women's Archive website titled simply Rahab, author Tivka Freimer-Kensky and Carol Myers write, quote, Rahab has a special function in the biblical narratives of Israel's experience in the land. When uncovering the men from her roof, she explains that she knows that God will give Israel the land. This is the message that the men bring back to Joshua. Rahab is thus the oracle, or prophet, of Israel's occupation of the land. Rahab, who begins as triply marginalized, Canaanite, woman, and prostitute, then moves to the center of the story as bearer of a divine message and herald of Israel in its new land. Rahab is remembered in Jewish tradition as the great proselyte or convert, 
as ancestress of kings and prophets, and in the New Testament as ancestress of Jesus, end quote. I love the titles that are attributed to Rahab in this article. We hear words like oracle, prophet, herald, ancestress, converts. In an article titled Rahab the Faithful Harlot, author Amy Cooper Robinson says about this, quote, The Rahab story is one in a long line of biblical stories of God working through the underdog or the powerless, end quote. So we're beginning to understand how the Israelite perspective views Rahab. But remember, though the text treats Rahab as an Israelite herself, or at least as an ally to the Israelites, she isn't an Israelite. She's first a Canaanite. In the same article I just quoted from Amy Cooper Robinson, Robinson writes, quote, Rahab represents marginality in several ways. She is a woman and a single childless woman at that. She is not part of Israel, but one of the people of a city that is about to be conquered. And finally, she is a prostitute. Living in the walls that circles the city, she literally and symbolically inhabits the boundary of society." So we're beginning to understand and flush out Rahab's identity and place in her Canaanite society. And this part of her story becomes even more fleshed out as the narrative picks up and Rahab begins to turn on her own people. The author of the article titled Rahab the Prostitute, a Postcolonial Perspective on the Queer Bible Hermeneutics website, argues that Rahab's position in Canaanite society can be classified as queer. Her occupation places her in an unusual or non-conforming or queer place in society. Rahab doesn't act according to gender roles and societal expectations of the time. She lives on the outskirts of the community because she's not centered by the community. Because of this, the author of the article argues that, quote, Rahab has nothing to lose in terms of standing in her own culture. However, if she assists the invading colonizers, she wins favor, position, and the possibility of preserving her life and the lives of her relatives, end quote. And this is where we begin to examine another facet of Rahab's story as Canaanite trader. The authors of this article cite the work of Marcella Althus Reed, who grapples with the idea that Rahab not only betrays her native nation, but she also betrays the queerness at the center of her lived experience. She trades in her queer identity to assist and eventually participate fully in the colonizing presence of Israel, which we know is male-centric, patriarchal, and oppressive. From this point of view, it becomes really difficult to see Rahab as simply as the text or its conservative tellings of her would really like us to. In this sense, Rahab becomes less of a faithful convert and more of a traitor, not only to her people, but to herself. One of the questions that I've been grappling with with Rahab's story is a question that was actually given to me by my friend Colette Dalton. We were at lunch together talking about who even knows, (laughs) but she mentioned the question that she had been working with was this, if you feel you don't have a choice, do you really have a choice? And I think that question applies to Rahab's story too. 
Do you really have a choice if your only other option is to die? That kind of was the circumstance that Rahab was in. She could see the colonizing forces coming into her city, and she recognized what was going to happen. And in this way, it's really tough to offer a judgment on her story. We want to ask questions and categorize her. We want to know, is she a convert or a traitor? And the answer to that question is yes. Was Rahab faithful or was she a lying harlot? Yes. Is she a colonizer or was she colonized? Yes. Good or bad? Yes. Rahab is never fully one or the other. In the text, the only justification for Rahab's rescue is her willingness to help the spies and recognize God as powerful. She's not necessarily righteous by Israelite standards for women, and we know absolutely nothing about the character of her family. When I read Rahab's words earlier from chapter 2, I read it as less of a profession of faith and more about a statement of recognition of reality and expression of fear. Remember, Rahab says things like, I've heard about you and your God. I know what you've done. And I see your people on the horizon. My city is next. That's why you're here. And I can imagine that at this point in time, the road ahead of Rahab kind of forks. She's at a crossroads. And the choice is help or die. And again, if you feel you don't have a choice, do you really have a choice? So I feel really strongly that I can't really judge or fault Rahab for her choice especially as someone who's never had to personally face similar circumstances. I can't know for sure what I would have done. But I do know that the value of life can't be underestimated. For the people she saved, Rahab is most certainly a heroine. And if we look at the character of Rahab herself, perhaps we can understand her story as that of a woman like Hagar, who makes a way out of no way. We can see Rahab as a woman who recognizes the reality of her situation and clings to whatever scarlet thread of redemption is available to her and shares it with the people that she loves. I really appreciated this quote from Amy Cooper Robinson, who we talked about earlier. In their article, they write, quote, Rahab is both powerful and marginal, both shameful and formidable. And I love that quote because it reminds us that Rahab is never all in one category or all in another. It's incredibly striking to me that in a book that seems to illustrate aggrandized and embellished war narratives, that we find a strikingly honest depiction of a woman's story. Rahab is what she is in the text, neither hero nor villain, but human. As we turn from focusing on Rahab's story back to the narrative in the text, we move to chapter 3. And chapters 3, 4, and 5 take a break from the story of Jericho. And in this part of the story, we see God parting the waters of the Jordan River so that Joshua and the Israelites can cross through the dry land over the Jordan River. In chapters 4 and 5, the Israelite people commemorate the parting of the waters. The Israelite men circumcise themselves. 
and the Israelites observe Passover, and God ceases to send manna. So we're really coming at a turning point here for the Israelites. And finally, in chapter 5, we have an instance where Joshua meets an angel who is apparently the captain of God's army. I don't have a ton of interpretation to offer on this portion of the story, so I'm really excited to hear what others offer um, because this was really fascinating to me. It's just a couple of verses, and I wish that I could spend more time there. So just a heads up or a highlight for our listeners to turn and study to if that also interests them as well. Okay, so chapter six, we come back to Jericho in the narrative. The chapter starts out with a real bang. God gives Joshua some explicit instructions of how to defeat Jericho, who has completely shut the city down. The walls are up, no one goes in, no one goes out. So to solve this and still offer the Israelites success, God says to Joshua that they should walk around the city walls of Jericho seven days in a row, with seven priests blowing trumpets seven times. When the seventh trump plays on the seventh day, the people should shout, and this will cause the walls of Jericho to fall. The Israelites do all of this, and on the seventh day before the shout, Joshua reminds everyone not to harm anybody in Rahab's house. The walls fall, and we learn in chapter 6, verse 20, quote, And the Israelites utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. After the Israelites bring Rahab to the camp, the Israelites burn and curse the city of Jericho, reminding everyone that none of the treasure of Jericho was to be taken, but was meant to be left there for God. And this becomes important as we move into chapter 7. Now chapter 7 and 8 somewhat serve as a mirror or a compare and contrast narrative to the story about the city of Jericho because they happen in a neighboring city called Ai. So the Israelites go to conquer this neighboring city of Ai and they lose. They lose the battle. And Joshua is super confused by this. He's like, God, you told me that all I would have to do is follow your commandments and we would be guaranteed victory. And God's like, yeah, I did say that. But unfortunately, one of the people did not listen to the commandment to not bring treasure out of Jericho. And Joshua's like, oh my gosh. So <laughs> he goes through and he goes through the entire camp of the Israelites to find the person who stole the treasure. And a man named Achan confesses. Now the punishment that God had recommended for someone who stole treasure out of Israel was that they be burnt with fire alongside the treasure and along with everything that that person owned. So we see in chapter 7 verse 24 that quote, Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold that he had stolen and his sons and his daughters, his oxen and asses and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. End quote. 
We learn that because of the murder and burning of Akan and all that he had, including members of his family, that the Lord turned his fierceness of anger away from the Israelites. And later in chapter 8, they return back to the city of Ai and they win the battle and conquer the city. The story's kind of icky, right? It's kind of unsettling because... Wow, you die because you took you took treasure. You broke the commandment. It just seems so off-putting to me because I continually turn to the text and want to find a God who is forgiving, who gives second chances. And at least for the last couple of books that we've come through in the Hebrew Bible, we haven't really found that. So I went looking for some deeper understanding about what's operating here in the story and maybe how I could study or look at this story in a way that feels life-giving or at least can offer a perspective of how we can move through this story. And I came across an article titled Cosby, Akan, and Jezebel, Executions in the Hebrew Bible and Modern Lynching, written by Mark McIntyre at, at Belmont University. And McIntyre argues that the Akan story stirs up an argument of individual punishment for individual actions and communal punishment for communal actions. And really, this story about Akan really stirs up this idea that individuals are punished for individual actions and communities are punished for communal actions. It stirs them up and shoves them together, and we get this instance of communities being punished for individual actions and then communities punishing individuals, but then also not. We see that Akan's individual action of choosing to keep treasure meant for God affects the community by causing them to lose a battle. And then as the community turns around to punish Akan, they don't just stop at him, but they exterminate all that he had including innocent people, human and non-human alike. McIntyre's piece was inspired by James Cone, the founder of Black Liberation Theology. And McIntyre connects the story of the killing of a con and his family to modern-day lynchings of Black folks in the United States. McIntyre says that the execution of a con, quote, lynching always presents a surplus of violence, end quote. Because of the publicity of the discovery of Akan's treachery, the execution of him and his family was a public spectacle. McIntyre writes, quote, This story acts as both a warning and a force of unification for the community. It is a story that sends a message demanding conformity, end quote. McIntyre's work focuses on dismantling the concept of lynchings as a belief that a violent death can solve communal suffering. And I see here in their work the assertion that the killing of a Khan and his sons and daughters is an example of a public spectacle meant to teach a lesson of conform or else. And we see echoes of this in nearly every system of domination that threatens the lives of the marginalized today. The message is conform or else, conform to heteronormativity, to androcentrism, to whiteness. The or else can look like anything, but behind it, even in its tamest form, or else always hints at death. We can read the story of the murder of Akan's unnamed daughters in memoriam. 
We remember their story and honor them as worthy of life and look to them to remind us of the innocence and inherent worth of those who suffer most in the systems meant to dominate, oppress, and annihilate, especially when their deaths happen in spaces and in communities that are built to care for them. We remember still Breonna Taylor, who was shot while she slept in her bed in March 2020. We remember Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Catherine Massey, Roberta Drury, Pearly Young, Hayward Patterson, Celestine Cheney, Geraldine Talley, Andre McNeil, and Margus Morrison, who were killed in a mass shooting in a grocery store in Buffalo, Minnesota, just over a week ago on Saturday, May 14th, 2022. We remember that they were innocent and honor them as worthy of life. Perhaps we can view the story of Akan as a reminder that there is no such thing as an individual action because individuals always function inside communities. What one does for oneself, one does for or to the community. And what the community does to or for an individual is a shared responsibility and a shared accountability for good or for awful. More explicitly, we can view the story of Akan as a reminder that not all who suffer are guilty. In fact, most aren't. Akan is punished for taking the treasure, but his family is punished for the mere association with him, a factor which they have little control over. The same can be said about black and brown folks who experience undeserved discrimination, violence, and death in the system of white supremacy. Unlike Akan, who was guilty, black and brown folks have committed no crime but rather are more like Akan's sons and daughters who carry the burden of guilt without cause thanks to the dangerous association white supremacy has made between black and brown bodies with guilt and shame. So as modern day readers of this story, especially white readers, we can study the story of Akan and his murdered sons and daughters to examine our role in the system of white supremacy. When we read this story, we can ask ourselves, how am I actively working against my racial biases? How do I associate the likelihood of crime or undesirable character traits with someone's skin color? How do I believe people are more or less trustworthy or innocent depending on their proximity to whiteness? When racist comments are made in my circles of influence, do I speak up? Or do I remain silent and go along with the group? How do I participate in the collective condemnation of black and brown folks? How do I actively work to stop my participation in the condemnation of black and brown folks? And finally, what skills will I utilize in a group setting to share and elevate black and brown voices and experience? These questions can move us from simply reading the text as a sad story and instead push us into a space where we work to keep this story from happening again and again. As we turn back to the text, we look at chapters 9 through 13. And this chunk of chapters outlined the Israelite skirmishes and fighting with Canaan to obtain their land. 
In total, 31 cities and a whole bunch of land is mentioned as being conquered, along with kings and rulers. We come across verses that really illustrate the brutality of this battle in chapter 10, verse 40, which reads, quote, So Joshua smote all the country of the hills, and of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded, end quote. Okay, so now we know the story that the narrative in the text tells. But this is not the only story about the time of Joshua. It's time to explore the alternative story to the Israelite narrative. In his book titled The Bible Tells Me So, Author Peter Enns shares an alternative story to the book in Joshua, and it's one of archaeology. Enns states that while archaeologists don't and can't know everything, they are able to determine a few things, and that includes violent destruction and conquering of cities. Based on evidence like soot and ash, smashed pottery and bones. With this in mind, Enns reminds us that 31 towns are recorded as being destroyed in the Israelite text. But archaeological evidence of destruction can only be found in four or less cities at the time of the Joshua narrative. More than half of the cities that the text claims to have been taken over without resistance were not even occupied at the time. Enns also states that archaeological digs in the area where Jericho is haven't found any large walls surrounding the city. For most of the towns, evidence favors internal Canaanite fighting rather than outside conquering forces coming in. Enns argues that these stories became exaggerated with hundreds and hundreds of years of retelling. And I don't know about you, but knowing this makes me feel way more comfortable reading and talking about the book of Joshua, because I know that some of the most horrific events described don't even necessarily happen. But, and this is a big but, that sigh of relief is fleeting, because on the heels of talking about whether or not a story is actually factually capital T true, must come a conversation about the power of story. And if you've been listening for a long time, you'll know I'm obsessed with stories. It's an area of really deep interest for me. I love fairy tale and myth. And as I've intensified my study in these areas, I'm beginning to appreciate the concept that myths and fairy tales serve as more than mere entertainment. They also have moral and educational value. Stories from different cultures are like windows. We can look through them and see what the community values, what they love, how they relate to one another, and how they operate in peaceful times and in times of conflict. Scripture stories are no different. They have all the elements of a powerful story, and their lasting power is unmatched. These stories are ancient. They originate out of a time and place that is foreign to most readers especially those in the West. And yet, we know them because they were told to us throughout our lives. And a good story is really sticky. They're designed to be, because stories have value in the lived experience of the communities that they're told in. 
a really good example of this, of the moral or educational value of folktales and folk stories, is this one. Stories in English folklore tell about bog creatures who were evil and crept out of the water to drown anybody caught walking in the bog after dark. Is this a scary campfire story? Absolutely. But it also probably kept people out of the bogs at night when it was really difficult to see and navigate that treacherous terrain. Fairy tales teach lessons, and they do it effectively because they elicit emotion in their telling. The brain prioritizes memories that elicit strong emotional responses, and these memories are retained and passed down to the new generation at another campfire, offering both their entertainment and their protection. This is what I mean by the power of stories. They're powerful because in them they hold kernels of truth and education. When these stories elicit an emotion, no matter what the emotion is, they stick around. And because art imitates life, imitates art, these sticky stories move in and out of lived experience through history. If we move to the text for another example of this, we come across it in this week's chapters. The Israelites who passed through the Red Sea with Moses on dry land had mostly died by the time Joshua was a prophet, but the story lived on. So when it came time for the new generation of Israelites to cross the River Jordan, again, the river divided so they could cross on dry land. They heard the story, then they lived the story. And remember, old stories are really sticky. That's why we still know all of these Bible stories from thousands of years ago. But stories rarely stay in the text, including those we wish would have, especially like those of the violence and colonization we find in Joshua. Mark McIntyre continues in their article to state, quote, Some attention has been paid to the ways that particular sets of texts in the Hebrew Bible have played roles in racial injustice in the United States. The stories of Israel's conquest or occupation of the land of Canaan, particularly in the book of Joshua, helped to define and fuel the colonization of the North American continent by European settlers. End quote. So while we can take comfort in knowing anciently the Israelites only did a small portion of what they claimed to do in the text, we can't really rest on our laurels. The story in the text may not be capital T, actual, factual, true in the case of the Israelites, but in our lived experience, in our time, the story we find in Joshua has come true in a way. For our white listeners in the United States, our ancestors relied on narratives just like that in Joshua to conquer and colonize Turtle Island. And for listeners with pioneer heritage, the violence of colonization is really close to home. If we continue with this theme of colonization, as I moved through the text, I came across a verse in chapter 24, which is when Joshua is giving his dying words to the Israelites. Through Joshua, God tells the Israelites in verse 13, quote, And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them. Of the vineyards and the olive yards which ye planted not, do ye eat. End quote. This verse hits different when we view the story through the lens of colonialism. If the land of promise 
flowing with milk and honey, is synonymous with the displacement of native peoples in order to occupy what the text says, land for which you did not labor, cities which you did not build, then the promised land is synonymous with colonization. Is it any coincidence, then, that the United States, which is a nation built on stolen land and built with stolen lives, is the land of promise for those who read themselves into the Bible as the Israelites? This is the power of story. As we spend time here in chapters 23 and 24, which are the last chapters in the book of Joshua, we learn in chapter 23, verse 1, quote, And it came to pass that a long time after, the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age, end quote. So learning that Joshua is now an old man at the end of the text, I have a sneaky, sneaky suspicion about the book and the character of Joshua. And I think it's impossible to prove, but I want to share it anyway. I find it especially curious that the book of Joshua chronicles the story of a warrior man leading other men to war. And the book and the wars with the Canaanites end with his old age and death. Did God choose Joshua? The text says yes, but the text is not always reliable. Sometimes people become leaders because they're charismatic and will get for the people what they want, and not always what they need. I don't think I'll ever be able to be sure, but I do find it curious that the prophet that the Israelites have after wandering with Moses in the wilderness for 40 years who have ate straight bread for all of those days, except for the really bad quail incident, who have suffered unexpected plagues, snake infestations, and mass killings at the hand of their deity. The prophet that they get after all of that is a man who delivered on the kind of wealth and stability and security that comes with land ownership. With Moses, the people had a wandering mountain prophet to lead them and a God who led and even kept the wandering going. With Joshua, they have a warrior prophet and a warrior God. It is interesting, is it not, that sometimes God looks a lot like the prophet instead of the other way around? If I were to give you some cliff notes of Joshua's final speech, we hear him recount the history of the Israelites from Abraham to the present, and say, see what God has done for you? If you want to keep this good thing going, make sure to keep the law of Moses, and don't make friends, don't intermarry, and definitely don't worship other gods from other nations. Just love and cleave unto God, and everything will go the way it's supposed to. The book of Joshua ends with his death and a few various burial accounts, which signifies the end of an era for the Israelites. Next week, we move into the book of Judges, which begins a new portion of history for the Israelite people. Friends, I know it's been a tough one today, and I also know that this episode is one in a handful of many tough books with heavy content. So if your soul and psyche and body feel overwhelmed and heavy, I hope you'll take some time this week to care for yourself. I'm going to as well. Rest so you can engage again. Maybe add a new bird to your life list. Bake a cake just because it's spring. Plant some lilac flowers. 
Listen to the new Florence and the Machine album with Elise and I. Read Ross Gay's Book of Delights. Do what makes you feel alive and connected to your body and yourself again. Soften and open. It's the only way forward. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode today as we walk through the book of Joshua. Also, as I'm recording, I'm hearing my kids playing with toys in the background and laughing with each other, and that is definitely a tender moment for me because it's so rare. So if we happen to catch it on the podcast, I hope that you'll offer me your forgiveness and also your celebration with me that my kids are actually getting along for once. So friends, love you. Thank you. And we'll see you next week with Elise and I as we move through the book of Judges. Bye. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred, and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.